Thank you, Joe, for your ministry and music. As we've uh, said, we are going to be working our way through the book of Exodus these Sunday evenings uh, here in the months uh, to come. And uh, as we move into Exodus, Exodus is a book that I'm excited to, for us to move into. I think at least some of the stories within uh, the book of Exodus are pretty well known. It's a familiar book. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's a very large book. And though we have stories within it, uh, there's a lot of other types of um, maybe genres or, or types of writing that we find within the book of Exodus. We have songs in the book of Exodus. We have law in the book of Exodus. Uh, we even have, I don't know what type of genre to really to call it, but uh, building project manuals in Exodus. So there's really just a, a great amount of uh, different types of writing that we find in Exodus. And looking forward to our study uh, in Exodus these Sunday evenings. And as we begin our study in the book of Exodus, I'd like us to consider a presidential election. And, and by this logo, I by no means am trying to advocate for any candidate, just trying uh, to have a neutral presidential election uh, logo. For us to think about a president, presidential election, and we have one coming up uh, this fall, and as we think about maybe past elections, as you think about uh, the elections in the past, or as we think about this future election, or uh, elections to come in the years and the decades uh, to come, I'd like you to consider with me if your candidate, the one that you're hoping will get into office, the one that you vote for, I'd like you to consider with me if that candidate does not get in, if they don't get in, is all hope lost? Do you feel like you, the country, maybe even Christianity, is in trouble? And maybe the candidate truly is against Christianity, the one that gets voted in. They're not a Christian. They're not for God's people, and, and they plan to implement laws and, and policies that will not uphold God's word and will actually be hostile towards God's people. I'd like you to consider with me, how are we to think about such a change? How are we to think about such a change? And the book of Exodus opens with such a political change. So tonight we'll consider Exodus chapter 1, and we find a change in the political landscape in the land of Egypt. And we're going to see that it changes everything for the people of God. So our theme for this first chapter of Exodus is Exodus opens on God's, God's people Israel in a foreign nation, and we'll consider God's role in this chapter. So I'm going to have all the scripture up on the screen for the most part, so you're, you're welcome to just follow along, along on the PowerPoint, but certainly uh, you can have your Bibles open as well if you'd like to do it that way. But uh, we'll work through Exodus chapter 1, and we see that it starts with Israel still in Egypt. And there's a reason I say still and that is because the book of Exodus does not open on a brand new story. Really, as you think about the Bible, uh, none of the books open on a brand new story other than the first book of the Bible, Genesis. But, but Exodus makes a point to show that this is no story that we're opening up to, but it's a continuation of the story that began in the book of Genesis. The author of Exodus we see goes to great lengths in the beginning of the verses of Exodus to connect the story that we find in Exodus back to the story of Genesis. Okay, the author of Exodus shows that 
Exodus belongs to actually a set of books, that the book of Exodus is not only the second book of the Bible, but we could actually say it's the sequel to the book of Genesis. The story that began in Genesis continues through Exodus. So there's several ways that our author uh, opens up the book of Exodus, and I think he intentionally tries to show us or, or make us look back. Look back at what was said before. This story connects, and Genesis is vitally important to this next book. So several ways that the author of Exodus shows that Exodus continues the story of Genesis. And the first one I would say may be the most important, and that is based off of the very first word of this book. Okay, in, in, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and, and specifically the ESV, which is what we use, it reads like this. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Okay, said the very first word, and interestingly enough, the ESV does not include this first word in its translation. The NAS and the King James Version, they try to include this first word by saying, now, these are the names. So they add this word, but they translate it as now. The word that we actually have here that opens up the book of Exodus is the word and. It should read like this, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Okay, which is a very odd way to start a sentence, and for that matter, to start a whole entire book, as the word and is a conjunction. Conjunction is used to connect clauses or, or sentences together. The book of Exodus begins with the word and, intentionally making us uh, connect it to the book and the story that comes before it. So the author of Exodus begins with the word and to make it abundantly clear that Genesis flows right into Exodus. These stories go together. And for that matter, Exodus, Genesis, and the several books following it are actually shown all to, to connect together as well. We call this the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And interestingly enough, the books of Leviticus and the books of Numbers, they start with this word and as well. They start with this conjunction and, showing that we have one continuous story from Genesis through Numbers. And it's signaled to us by this word and, a connecting word, connecting us back to what was previously said. So these are all sequels in a book series. Each book relies on the story told before it. Each book, Exodus and, and the several books coming after it, must be read in light of the whole. So Exodus begins with the word, and Moses is trying to show us this is a continuous story. But there's other ways that he does this as well. Okay, we get the very first word, and then we see that we're dealing with the same family as the book of Genesis. The, the book of Genesis, and it's specifically the one that it uh, leaves off on. Exodus 1, 5, 1, 1 through 5 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naph Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So it's Israel, it's Jacob's family that is the focus of the beginning of Exodus, and this is the same exact family that the book of Genesis ends with. 
And then thirdly, you see that Exodus continues the story of Genesis in that the story is continued. Again, Exodus 1, 1 through 5, and specifically looking at where they're at. In verse 1, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naph. Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Genesis ends with the family of Israel in Egypt, and Exodus shows we're picking up right where we left off. They're still in Egypt. It's, it's continuing this story. So what we have in Exodus really truncates what we find specifically in Genesis 46 to the end into five verses. So it summarizes great amount of detail in these five verses. And I was going to take some time tonight to, to give us a brief recap, to run through several passages uh, in Genesis to show how uh, they led to Exodus. But uh, for the sake of time, and because I don't want to rush through our material uh, or the chapter we're dealing with, I want to just summarize it like this. This is how Genesis ends and leads to Exodus. Genesis ends by showing that through a course of events, God took the family of Israel through one of Jacob's 12 sons, that's Joseph, and through Joseph's rise to power in Egypt and Jacob's family coming to Egypt, God took them from the promised land of Canaan to being welcomed and then living in the land of Canaan. So specifically through this, Joseph, okay, uh, Jacob's son, he rises to power in Egypt through a course of events, Jacob's family is brought there through a famine, uh, and they end up living and being welcomed into Egypt. So Genesis, out of the book of Genesis, if we uh, looked at that last chapter, we really have a very peaceful picture uh, of the family of Jacob living in the land of Egypt. Even though it's a foreign nation, a foreign land, they don't belong there, there's peace. They have what they need. Things are going good for this family. So in these five verses, how Exodus opens, we are given no new information. It's all review. It's all recap to show we've got a continuous story. But then in the next two verses, we see it moves us forward. We get some new material and, and a move forward. And the first way we see this is in verse 6. All those who originally traveled down to Egypt passed off the scene. Exodus 1, 6 says, Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. So Genesis actually mentions that Joseph dies as well, but here we have more detail, as not only Joseph dies, but his brothers dies, and then it says, in all that generation. And I take all that generation to mean all their, all their children who had traveled down with them to Egypt. So all those that had traveled down, all of them died. We have a new generation being talked about here at the, the beginning of Exodus. We find out in the book of Exodus what took place after the death of Joseph. And at first, things seem to be going very, very well. As we see that the family of Jacob, his family of Israel, grows by astronomical numbers. If you look with me at Exodus 1.7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, we are told in Genesis 46, verse 27, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, all the persons of the house of Jacob 
who came into Egypt were 70. So they were a large family, but by no means uh, would have we said they were a nation. Okay? They, they were a large family. They had several, um, or each, each son had several uh, kids. They were a large family, but we're shown here at the beginning of Exodus that this family, this large family, grew by leaps and bounds. Notice the language. In verse 7, this is a very important verse. The author's trying to get us to see this. We get the word fruitful, which just speaks of producing children. We get a second phrase, increase greatly, meaning they, they, uh, to bring forth abundantly. We get the word multiplied. It means to become much, to become numerous. It says they grew exceedingly strong, which has both the idea of being countless. They couldn't be counted. They were so many. And it also has the idea of being strong. So there was strength in numbers. And then it says the land was filled with them, meaning they were so many that they, they spread out. So five different ways in verse 7, it's being communicated that this family grew and it grew and it grew. This is no longer a large family, but a nation has grown within the nation of Egypt. The author of Exodus is trying to get across that this family miraculously multiplied. After Joseph and after that generation, this family grew rapidly. So these first seven verses, they review, they recap, but they also start out, start out very positively. It's a continuation of Genesis. Though a generation dies, many, many generations are born within the land of Egypt. This family has become a nation. But in the next verse, we find a great shift. Something changes. So our next section is a little shorter, but it's a change of position for Israel and Egypt. So we come to them that they're still in Egypt, they're still living there, and now there's a change of position. Okay, and we can, we'll consider first why this change of position for Israel, and that's because there is a change of ruler. Exodus 1 verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, there's a lot in this verse that we are not told. Okay, who was this king? We're not even given his name. Was it a new dynasty altogether? Did a, another nation take over Egypt and, and then we get a, a new ruler out of that? When exactly did this take place? We're also not told specifically that. Though I, I do want to point out, because I think it's helpful for us to see and understand this verse, in Exodus 12, 40-41, we get an idea of the timing. It says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So we're told that Israel, this family, lived uh, in the land not just for a couple of years, but for uh, centuries, 430 years. This new king seems to have ruled at the tail end of these 430 years. As we go through the story uh, and, and ultimately see the people of Israel move out of Egypt, it seems as if this new king uh, ruled at the tail end of Israel's stay in Egypt. So decades and even centuries had passed up to this point. So when it says again in Exodus 1.8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Who did not know Joseph? We can see that. Yes, he didn't personally know him as they lived many years apart. And further, as we think about what this means, I don't think this needs to mean that the new king knew nothing of Joseph. Okay, it says, who did not know Joseph? This could also mean that he never heard of him. He didn't know about this family. He didn't know about the history. 
Don't think it needs to be, uh, I don't think that needs to be the understanding, but rather uh, the, how I think we need to understand this verse is that by not knowing Joseph, it means that he would not uphold the arrangements to allow Israel to peacefully live in their land. So when Israel came, they were welcomed, they were greeted, they were honored guests. By saying he did not know Joseph, yes, he didn't know him personally, but additionally it means he's not going to uphold the arrangements that were made for Joseph and his family. Verse 8, that a new pharaoh rose in Egypt, changes everything for Egypt or for, for the Israelites. Verse 8 sets the trajectory for the rest of the book of Exodus. So we get a change of ruler, and now we get his view of the Israelites. So change of ruler, and now we're told specifically what he thinks about them. In Exodus 1, 9 through 10, it says, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this new king views the Israelites as a threat. He sees their size as a problem. He, he portrays them as being able to actually overpower the, the nation of Egypt. And further, he anticipates the potential of them joining with their enemies if they attack. Okay, and there is some irony as we think about um, later in the book of Exodus. There's some irony here in that this new king's hypothetical scenario it does actually come to fruition later on. Not exactly how he anticipates, but an enemy of his does arise. This enemy does rally the Israelites together, and the Israelites do escape. Okay, we'll see that in the weeks to come. But this worry, uh, this worry comes to fruition, but it's not because of any injustice or wrongdoing on the Israelites' part, but rather it's the king's wrongdoing and injustice. So Pharaoh poses here the Israelites' numbers as an issue. So he sees them growing and growing and growing, as we saw in verse 7, as a, as a big itch issue, a detrimental threat to the nation of Egypt, and he calls them to act wisely. If you look again at verse 10, he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. He's saying, let us act in wisdom. Let's come together and let's figure out how we should address this problem, the nation of Israel. So as we think about the verses we've looked at so far, we see things have changed. Things have changed drast drastically for Israel. The tables have been turned. No longer are they in a favorable position. No longer are they honored guests in the land, but they are seen as a problem. They're seen as a growing problem. And their host will seek to control them, and we're going to see even destroy them. Now the section that will take us the rest of the way through the chapter is how the Israelites were then treated in Egypt. So things have changed for them. How are they going to be treated? We get to see now how Pharaoh and the Egyptians sought to act in wisdom or shrewdly towards the Israelites. So he said, let's come together. Let's come up with a wise plan. Well, now we get these wise plans, and we see it was to control them and also to contain them. And there's three plans. So how they're treated comes in three plans, and there's three plans, not because they're all at the same time, but one comes after another, and it's because these plans don't work. But with each plan, the plight of the Israelites gets worse and worse. So it begins with plan A. Place the Israelites in slavery. So the Israelites are forced 
into a new role. If you look with me at Exodus 1.11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So I say a new role as the Israelites were actually shepherds for the Egyptians before. Okay, the Pharaoh of Joseph's day spoke to him saying in Genesis 47 verse 6, The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So there doesn't seem to be any sense that before this, there was any type of slavery. Okay? Israel was in a foreign nation. They weren't citizens there. But it doesn't seem like there was any slavery or any forced labor. But rather, Pharaoh had just asked them, take care of my livestock. Okay, be shepherds to my livestock. What exactly Pharaoh thought now of putting Israel into slavery, what, what exactly he thought this would do for the growth of Israel isn't quite clear, but I think we can especially see from this first plan, he's trying to control them. He's trying to show that he is, he's over them. He's trying to show who is in charge, and we see that from the word afflict. Okay, it says again in verse 11, therefore let's... Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. This word afflict means oppression, and further it speaks of humbling. It speaks of causing someone to feel dependent. That is what Pharaoh is seeking to do in this first plan as he oppresses them with forced labor. The second sentence in verse 11 shows us what specifically they did, and it was that they were constructing building projects for Pharaoh. But we find that this plan backfires. Look with me at Exodus 1.12. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So notice that we're not just told that this doesn't do anything to stunt their growth, but we're told that, they, that the more they were oppressed by the Egyptians, the more they grew. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they and the more they spread abroad. So the more they were made to do the work of the Egyptians, the more they moved throughout the land. The complete opposite effect of what, what Pharaoh is aiming at here takes place. Egypt could try to be wise. They could try to plan and think of how to control and stop the growth of Israel. But we see here, it did not work. But at the same time, though the Israelites grew that did not mean what they were going through was tough. And our author shows that by coming uh, back to this forced labor in verses 13 through 14, if you look with me there. We see Israel continues in agonizing slavery. It says in verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made, made them work as slaves. Okay, so we get some more detail about this forced labor. So the, the fact that this plan did not work did not cause Pharaoh to say, I give up, it's not working, but it continues. Verses 13 and 14 show us that this is not just a job. Okay, they were shepherds at what, one time, but this is more than a job. This is, this is slavery. It's not enjoyable work, but it's grueling, violent work. Okay, we see this from the first and the last phrases 
have them underlined there, almost a repeat um, of the same thing being said in verse 13. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And then skipping down to the end of verse 14, it says, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This word ruthlessly in the Hebrew communicates violence, harshness, severity. This word further speaks of crushing, crushing. The Israelites were being crushed by this work. Their bodies were being demanded to work in difficult and strenuous ways. Their spirits were being flattened. We are to get the picture of the Israelites being made to work. The Egyptians yelling and demanding at them to work harder and harder. The Israelites being physically beaten and physically worked to continue to do what they were forced to do. Okay, so this was not pleasant work. It was not enjoyable work, but they were forced to do it. It was violent work. Verse 14 gives us more. It says, And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. So they're working on building projects, but they're also uh, manning the fields for the Egyptians. And then this word bitter says, and made their lives bitter. This word bitter communicates a lot as well. It shows how agonizing this was for the Israelites, how sorrowful they were, that this wasn't pleasant, but this was awful, and it brought great pain to the Israelites' life. The Israelites suffered. The Israelites go from welcome guests to slaves that are seen as a threat. Verses 13 and 14 show us how ugly things have gotten for, for the Israelites. This slavery may have weakened their spirits. It may have been physically harmful to the Israelites. But again, I'd point out, as our, as our passage is doing, going back and forth, it shows us that this did not thwart them from growing as a nation. So Pharaoh installs another plan. So they've got the forced labor. He doesn't give up on this. But he, he institutes another plan. And this time we can see he's trying to control the growth. And plan B is have the midwives kill the Israelites' baby boys. We first find Pharaoh's instructions to those who would deliver the Israelite babies. Look with me at verses 15 through 16. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh gives instructions to two ladies. And these seem to be, uh, at the very least, the ones who would deliver the babies to the Israelites. Or maybe they were uh, the ones who were the leaders of, of those who uh, would deliver the babies. But Pharaoh decides to go to those who would be the first to see a baby born. And his instructions or not to kill all the Israelite babies, but the boys. So here we can see he's probably addressing the fact that his, his worry is that they would join the army. So he's trying to cut off the men who would potentially uh, join an enemy to fight against Egypt. So it's the Israelite baby boys that he's after. And we then get the midwives' response. So he tells them this. He gives them pretty clear instructions. We see that they completely disobey Pharaoh's command. In verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the midwives do not kill one baby boy. And as we think about their, their lives, certainly would have been at risk doing this. 
but they do it anyway. And they protect the baby boys by allowing them to live. And I think it's important to ask why. Okay, why did they allow them to live? Verse 17 tells us, tells us their reasoning very clearly. It says, but the midwives feared God. So it wasn't that they weren't willing to kill. Okay, maybe they weren't willing, but it wasn't that they were scared to kill or they were scared about the wrath of these parents, but their ultimate reason is that they did this out of a fear of God. They saw this as going against the will of God, so they were unwilling to kill these baby boys. And I think it's just a a great example to us of being willing to follow God when it can mean their lives. Well, Pharaoh finds out. Can we move to the next verses? Pharaoh questions why they have not carried out his plan. Follow along as I read verses 18 through 19. It says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So we're not told how long it took for Pharaoh to find out what was going on, okay? And neither are we told how he found out what was going on, but he becomes aware of it. And he brings the midwives in before him and he questions why they've allowed the male babies to live. That midwives answer is to say that the Hebrew women are unlike the Egyptian women as they're vigorous. This word vigorous means that they, they give birth quickly, they give birth easily, so that, so that the midwife arrives after the baby is already born. And as you think about the midwife's answer, it's deceptive at best. Okay, it doesn't seem that it was pure chance that the Israelites the Israelite women gave birth before they arrived, but there seems to be some intentionality on the part of the midwife. As again, in verse 17, it says, it shows they were intentional. It shows they actively did this or refused to obey the Pharaoh. It says in verse 17 again, I'll go back there so we can see it. Verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God. And then here's the active part on the midwife's Uh, or on the midwife's part, it says, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the midwife's response to Pharaoh is, as I said, deceptive at best. The text credits uh, fully that the midwives, they refused to kill any baby boys. And why this is an issue is what is said next in these verses. God looked with favor on the midwives. It says in Exodus 1, 20 through 21, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we see here that God treated them well. Okay, he even gave them children of their own. So we may, may wonder, okay, the, the midwives do something deceptive. They lie to Pharaoh, and then God turns around and we're told that he looks with favor on them. We might question, are we to take from this that God condones lying and deceit in the right situation? Okay, it might cause us to think of another pretty similar scenario in the scriptures in the book of Joshua. Rahab uh, lies to the Jericho authorities to hide the spies, to protect them, to, to try and save their lives. So we might ask, does God look with favor on lying in the right situation? I don't believe so. Okay, and actually don't have this passage up there, but very short. Proverbs 12, 22, it's another portion of Scripture, and there's others as well that make it very clear that God does not condone lying. Lying uh, 
Lying is something that God does not allow. It's plain and simple about it. In Proverbs 12, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So as we think about this and we think about, is our text condoning lying? Is God, is he looking with favor on this act of lying? I think we need to look again at Exodus 1, 20 through 21 and see that this verse does not address the tactics or the lying and deception of the midwives, but it addresses the fact that they feared God that they rejected Pharaoh's command. Again, it says in verses 20 through 21, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So the text does not address the tactics. It's not saying God is okay with it or he allows this in certain situations, but rather the text shows us that God looks with favor, God dealt well with them because they refused to follow Pharaoh's command. Not the lying, but the, the refusing, the fearing God in refusing and disobeying the Pharaoh. And further, we should see how God used uh, these midwives so that the nation of Israel uh, continued to grow. So we should see this both as an example of fearing God, and, and secondly, we should see how God used these midwives to continue the growth of the nation of Israel. We see the plan ultimately failed. In Exodus 1.20 it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So the first plan backfired, and now we find the second plan that just straight up failed. Pharaoh tries to get the Israelite male babies killed, and we see that not one of them dies. These midwives refuse. So Israel continues to grow and grow. And now we come to plan C, and plan C is toss the Israelite baby boys into the Nile. Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh recruits his own people. Any Egyptian citizen may go ahead and kill the Israelite baby boys. And the means by which they would be killed is gruesome to throw them into the Nile, to drown little babies. We see the evil and we see the cruelty of the Egyptian empire towards the people of Israel by this last plan. And we see how Pharaoh is working against God and God's people. Unlike the other plans were given, no more details are given directly here. So this is where our chapter ends. It ends right here on verse 22. In chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, we're actually zeroed in on um, a baby that is born, right as this plan is uh, given. But for now, chapter 1 ends on a daunting and an awful note, showing us the desperate situation the people of Israel are in. Slaves are no longer welcome in a foreign land. The king of this foreign land is actively trying to control them. This king is even trying to stunt their growth, and he's gone to such lengths as to recruit his own people, the citizens, not just the authorities, but any citizen, to hunt down the Israelite children. Things have gotten bad for Israel and Egypt in this one chapter. This is how Exodus opens. The story of Genesis is continued, and things are not looking good. So the question we must ask, or the one that I like to ask, is where is God in such a chapter? 
Okay, if you notice, he wasn't mentioned too many times. We, we saw him with the midwives, but otherwise, God is not mentioned in this chapter. But there's two ways I want to point out to you as to how we see God at work in this whole chapter. And both go back to where we started with the book of Exodus, and that is both go back to what was previously said in the book of Genesis. And that's why I started out by emphasizing the fact that it's very important that we see that Genesis or Exodus um, connects back to Genesis. Genesis flows right into Exodus, so what was said in Genesis is very important. It's vitally important for the book of Exodus. In Genesis, God had promised this to Abraham who was an ancestor to the Israelite people. In Genesis 12, 2, he says, And I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Then in Genesis 13, 6, God says again to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Genesis 15, 5, God's, we have... God saying, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God again and again and again says to Abraham that his descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth, the stars of the heaven, which was, as I think many of us know, which was a pretty incredible promise because Abraham at one time had no children. But he's saying you're going to have many descendants. And this promise continues through the book of, of Genesis. And just to give us two more passages, one, it was given to Isaac, Abraham's son. Genesis 26, 4, it says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then to Isaac's son, Jacob, in Genesis 28, verse 14, it says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So I share all of these passages to show the, repeat, the repeated refrain in the book of Genesis that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family would multiply, that they would grow and grow, that this humble family would become a large family, would become a nation. As God originally started out by saying, I will make you a great nation, Abraham. God continues to stick to this throughout the book of Genesis, and here in Exodus 1, we find it fulfilled. The Israelites' growth was no mistake, so they show up to in, in Egypt. It's no mistake that they start growing, and they start to grow rapidly in Egypt. It's no accident. It's not by chance, but we find as we look back to Genesis that this was a fulfillment of God's promise. And I think the author of Exodus, he's trying to get us to notice this, okay, and to just line them up for us so that we definitely notice it. In Exodus 1-7, again, we're told, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In Exodus 1-9, we have the king of Egypt even noticing this. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Exodus 1.12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And then we get it a fourth time about this growth, this nation. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. I think the author's intent in Exodus 1, his focus, his purpose is to get across that Israel grew in the land of Egypt. His purpose is to show that God is fulfilling his promise for Israel in the land of Egypt. 
And to just add one more layer onto this, God fulfills his promise in the least likely of circumstances. Okay, being in, placed into slavery, having a death threat placed upon them, and ultimately being hunted down by the Egyptians, in this setting is where God's promise is fulfilled. God's promise was flourishing in a horrific scenario for the people of Israel. God's promise was being fulfilled with a, a government, with a ruler that was very against God and his people. And the surprising thing is, this was God's plan. So this is the second place I want to bring us back to Genesis. Genesis 15, 13 through 16 shows us that what takes place in Exodus 1 didn't catch God off guard, but he had actually planned it. Genesis 15, 13 through 16, the Lord says this to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. It will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we just saw or what we just studied in Exodus 1, God says is going to take place many, many years prior. Okay, again, verse 13 says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. That's Israel and Egypt. And he talks about them being afflicted and being servants and slaves there. God knew this would happen. God planned this to happen. God had orchestrated that Israel would suffer in Egypt. He had his reasons for doing so. God had so chosen that it would be in Egypt, in slavery, through suffering, that his nation would expand and multiply. So we learn from Exodus 1 that not only can nothing thwart the plans and the purposes of God, but the horrific events that we find in Exodus 1 are part of God's plans. So what do we learn about God from this chapter? It's this, that though it may not be shown in flashy or obvious ways, God is faithful to his people and his promises in, in trying and devastating times. So this is a chapter, even though God isn't mentioned much, this is a chapter that is all about God's faithfulness to his people and his promises to them. So as we started this message with, we find all hope is not lost when our candidate does not get elected. We should not be in despair when an anti-God and an anti-God's people political leader gets elected. As policies are made that go against, directly against God and his word, as God's people are being persecuted, this chapter teaches us that God is fully in control and at work in the midst of these things. God is not threatened by pharaohs or kings or presidents. God's plans are accomplished through corrupt empires and governments. God's promises are fulfilled in times when his people are targeted. This afternoon, I was, I was thinking about our message, and I was thinking about just the, the lessons that we really can pull from this, and just an exa another example, and we won't look at it uh, this evening, but another example in the scriptures came to mind of the early church. So after Jesus ascended and his disciples uh, were in Jerusalem teaching and preaching the gospel, they were being persecuted. The Jewish leaders and the government was against them, was even killing some of them, and yet... God used it 
for his gospel to spread. So we see the same types of things that God is fulfilling his promises and his plans in pretty rough time, in pretty rough times for his people. And right now, as as we think about our lives and specifically living here in the United States, I think we could agree that our persecution is minimal. And and specifically comparing it to other countries where Christians are killed for their faith, where it's outlawed to believe, even as we think about the history of of Christianity, I believe Exodus 1 and, and what we find about God is something that we should keep in our back pockets as we think about the years to come, as we think about the future to come, not knowing what persecution will come to us uh, in the United States. I think this is a chapter that's good to keep in our back pocket as we learn great lessons about God as his people are, are being hunted, are being persecuted. So as we conclude, we find that God is faithful in the circumstances in Exodus chapter 1. And God is faithful in the circumstances that we face right here in 2024 and in the years to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the book of Exodus. And we thank you for just the lessons that that we get right here in the beginning of it as we see your people being targeted, as we see your people being uh, literally hunted down and and sought to be killed. Lord, I pray that this would be, a, would be a lesson for us to see how things are, are not lost, that uh, we have no reason not to have hope when these types of things are taking place. Lord, as, as we think about governmental leaders and we think about who um, will be elected in the fall, both as the president, but um, even presidents for the years to come, as we think about all over our world, the kings and the rulers that are elected, Lord, we have a text here that shows that you are not controlled. Even your will and your purposes are not thwarted by human beings. Lord, I pray that you would give us a great trust, an unwavering trust, that you are at work, you are fulfilling your promises, even in these these terrible times that we see in Exodus 1. Lord, give us a greater trust in you, and even give us eyes to see the ways that you're at work, the ways that you're fulfilling your promises in our world today and in the years to come. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we can gather, that we can worship you, sit under your word, and Lord, help us to live it out in this week to come. And in your name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us this evening, and you are dismissed.